0: The vision of Isaiah, the son of Amoz, which he saw concerning Judah in Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib. But Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sores and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate, your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour your land. It is desolate, as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in a vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom, and become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts, my soul hates. They become a burden to me. I am weary of burying them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good. Seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool." If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land, but if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray, guys, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are the sufficient Lord. We thank you for your word, which is a sufficient word. And I pray, Lord God, that you would uh, grant us today uh, ears to hear and eyes to see, that you, O God, would feed us, O Lord, from the riches and the treasures of Holy Scripture. Lord, we submit to it, we yield to it, we acknowledge its authority this day, and we ask that it would be that double-edged sword, that it would pierce today, even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and joint and marrow, and, Father God, in your mercy, that it would discern the thoughts and the intents of our hearts. Oh God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm going to just to, to, launch, to launch into this um, manuscript, Missing Notwithstanding. And um, um, when I was uh, thinking about Isaiah, um, Isaiah chapter 1 is a heavy-hitting passage. It's hard for us to hear. Um, but when I was thinking about Isaiah the prophet, um, I thought about that painting by Michelangelo on the on the Sistine Chapel. He, he, um, well back in the kind of the, the, the high period of the Renaissance, uh, Pope Julius II, he commissioned Michelangelo to paint that what's now the masterpiece of the Sistine Chapel. And originally there was a plan for him just to uh, paint the twelve apostles, and uh, over a span of four years. He went from just painting the Twelve Apostles to painting nearly everything, from creation all the way to final judgment. And Michelangelo was a sculptor. That's what he loved to do best. He loved to work with marble. And if you've seen, if you've seen some of uh, his paintings, then you know uh, how good he was at it. The Pieta with Mary uh, holding a recently dead son. Uh, it displays something of the, of the majesty of his ability as a sculptor. Um, but he, he was quite um bothered that he'd be asked to do this painting. And for four years he endured great agony, the agony and the ecstasy, right? That old film with Charlton Heston about Michelangelo painting that, that Sistine chapel. And um what he completed in the end was was surely magnificent. In that painting are a number of the prophets. We see Ezekiel, we see Jeremiah. We see um, Daniel, we see Zechariah, uh, um, we see Jonah, and uh, we see Isaiah. The thing that's remarkable about the painting of Isaiah that Michelangelo did was that he painted him in a way in which you see the great youthfulness and also the great age of the prophet at the same time. His, faith is, his face is remarkably youthful, and at the same time he seems burdened with age. His hair is gray and it's white the position of of uh, isaiah's portrait is immediately diagonal to the frame which depicts the fall of adam and eve and the expulsion from the garden and immediately over michelangelo's right shoulder is an angel and that angel is pointing him to that great scene of misery and fall and isaiah is turning around looking as if he doesn't want to look (laughs) But knowing that he has to, and the care and the burden of it all is worn into his youthful face. (laughs) It's hard not to like Isaiah. It's hard not like to like the the prophet who has such a, a youthfulness of hope in him. Isaiah saw far, far down in the corridors of time. He saw the new Jerusalem. He saw the eschaton. He saw that period when when the people of Israel would bring hope and gladness to all the nations. And it's not surprising to me that when Jesus goes to enter into his ministry and to preach the gospel, he preaches from the one whom Jerome called the evangelical prophet. He preaches from Isaiah for God has anointed me, Jesus says, to proclaim good tidings, to announce hope to the downtrodden. And so as we read Isaiah today, um, I want you to remember this man who had such great hope for the glad tidings that were to come and at the same time was so stricken with the burden of sin. I know a few prophets that are so aware of the holiness of God I I mentioned already today that brief moment in Isaiah 6, where Isaiah is ushered into the majesty of the worship of God. In the Hebrew idiom, when you uh, want to stress the authenticity of something, when you want to stress the the reality of something, you double the word. So true silver is silver, silver. True gold in the Hebrew is gold, gold. (laughs) And Isaiah, when he wants to stress the holiness of God, he goes even beyond the double repetition of those two words, and he says, holy, 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 he says. And he's taken up into this reality of God's holiness, and he himself feels utterly undone by it. He doesn't look down his long, righteous nose at those other sinners, but he says, woe unto me. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips. And if anyone could utter a complaint about living amongst a people of unclean lips, it was Isaiah. I think when we read that phrase, I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips, we have to read a certain subtext there. Isaiah says here at the beginning of chapter 1 that he, he lived in the time of these four kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. I live amongst a people of unclean lips, he says. If you know anything about Uzziah, you know he was a pretty good king. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, we read. As long as he sought the Lord, the Lord caused Hezekiah to prosper. And there was a great period of peace in Judah, in the realm of Uzziah, until he got old, and until Uzziah grew proud, and Uzziah grew presumptuous, and he thought that he was fit to waltz into the presence of the Lord, and to put incense upon the altar. God all of a sudden becomes diminished in his sight, and 80 faithful priests come riding out, running out. Uzziah, you must not do this. You must not do this. Think of the Lord. And Isaiah, only in his pride, becomes angry, and he rejects those priests and he continues to do what he's doing. And the Lord strikes him down, and he strikes his face with leprosy. <laughs> I'm a man who lives. Amongst the people of unclean lips. And Uzziah died a leper, a man who falls from grace and denies the holiness of God. And then we have Jotham, his son, who was a fairly good king, but did nothing to counter the people's idolatry, did nothing to break down the altars, did nothing to break down the Asherapols, but he endured the bad teaching. He endured the idolatry that our Lord in our reading today from Revelation says, you must not do this. (laughs) Not enough for you just to go about and live a godly life. You must not endure these things. And then we have Ahaz, the king. The next one, the next son. Ahaz who sacrificed his own sons to the gods of the nations. Imagine being Hezekiah and your father has burned your other brothers. And finally, we have Hezekiah who was a good king. He was the best king, in fact. But Hezekiah read, like his great-great-grandfather, is that his great-great-grandfather, Uzziah, great-great-great-grandfather, grew proud and grew mindless of people at the end of his age. Isaiah knows what it's like to live amongst a people of unclean lips and he himself feels that he is a man of unclean lips. And he approaches now these uh, the, the people of Judah. Isaiah was a prophet of Judah. Isaiah really was a prophet of Jerusalem. He was a prophet of the city. And he comes now with a very uh, alarming message. And I want to look briefly today at um, the three aspects of um, uh, Isaiah's prophecy and his denunciation of the people of Israel, it's really grouped in in three sections here. The first section is um, a section of great irony, verses 2 to 3, where he says that Israel does not know, my people don't understand the fundamental problem with the people of Israel is that they've drifted from their original identity as Israel, and now they've drifted and become a people who simply no longer know or understand God. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib. Even the animals know better, the Lord says. You know, leading up to the Reformation, there was a a tradition, a well-established tradition, that linked verse 3 to the nativity. The ox knows its owner. Donkey recognizes its master's crib. I think it's quite a lovely, if fanciful, interpretation. Calvin had no patience for it. Calvin says, I wish that these men who interpret this passage such... Calvin is also always for the immediate context. He says, I wish that these people who interpreted this such were like the asses in the text, because then they would be asses worshiping Jesus, he says. Um, but I think, anyways, it's that, that aside. The animals know better, he says. That's what you do when you go off script when you don't have a manuscript. The, the, animals, uh, the animals know better. Israel doesn't know. My people don't understand. Oh, what's the irony here? What does Israel mean? Back in the day, Jacob, at the fort of Jabbok, the Lord had been leading Jacob through a great wilderness of weakness. He felt quite strong at the beginning, deceiving his brother. He was all about getting the good life now. He gets his stuff, and the Lord has to break Jacob through a, a variety of very difficult circumstances. till Jacob realizes he's nothing without God. And at the fort of Jabbok, he has this moment where he he wrestles with the angel all night long. He wrestles and he lays hold. He will not let God go until he receives the blessing. Because Jacob now understands that unless God's blessing comes, unless his blessing falls, I am nothing, he says. And he becomes a wrestler with God. And God names him no longer Jacob. He says, but now you are Israel. You are a prince with God. For you have striven with God and man, and you have succeeded Israel. You are one who grapples with the divine. You are one who lays hold of God. But now Israel, verse 3, does not understand. The striver, the grappler, the one who had laid hold on God, no longer knows. My brothers and sisters, there's far too little grappling going on in our Christian lives. There's far too little seizing of the divine. There's far too little putting aside other things. (laughs) Things that don't matter. Things that get in the way. Things that weaken and diminish us. Things that the world panders after. And far too little being Israel. What God has called us to be. I exist to lay hold of God. I exist to seize God. I exist to receive the fullness of God. And this is what Augustine says at the beginning of his confessions. You have made us for yourself, O Lord. And we roll around in restlessness. and this vague sense of anxiety. Because we're not doing the thing that we're made to do which is a lay hold of God and to be true Israels, my brothers and sisters. The animals know better. And let's follow their example, he says, and not be given to these things that get in the way. The second problem with Israel we see here, um, we see between uh, verses 7 and uh, verse 10. Between verses 7 and 10, uh, the prophet and God likens Israel or Judah here to Sodom and Gomorrah. We see it first in verse 7, where this idea of cities burned with fire. Then we see it in verse 9, with a suggestion that they could be like Sodom and Gomorrah. But then look at verse 10, where Isaiah explicitly names them. (laughs) Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Hear the word of the Lord, you people of Gomorrah. And you see now how Isaiah, he's encompassing all the people of Judah, both the rulers and the people. You are Sodom. And you are Gomorrah. Not only have you left your identity as grapplers with God, those who wrestle with God, but now you've become Sodom and Gomorrah, two cities that throughout Scripture are represented as those who put the pursuit of pleasure first. In Jude, and in Second Peter, we read of the of the sexual immorality, the sexual um, quote unquote freedom that these two cities gave themselves to. And they were so bad in this way that God chose to make Sodom and Gomorrah examples of what he would do with all such people one day. Now God says, you've become this very thing. Now my brothers and sisters, I say this to you, we must be very, very careful in an age which clearly worships sex and clearly worships pleasure of various kinds. It becomes the goal, whether it's material pleasure or just sensory enjoyment, or whether it's just pure sexual idolatry. And I'm not just talking here pornography. Pornography's bad enough. <laughs> but let's not kid ourselves. You can go a long ways being a lustful man or woman without the help of pornography. There's enough magazines in the grocery store, that are just full of the worship of sex. We talked about this in our young and old Bible study not long ago, those Asherah poles, they were clearly meant to worship sex. And so much of what comes out through our media is clearly the worship, bowing down to the goddess of sex. And how clearly we have to walk this line. You know, the, 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 the call to faithfulness, marital fidelity, not even having a hint of infidelity. When Heather and I pray at night as husband and wife, it's our prayer, oh God, spare us from even having a hint of infidelity of any kind. Oh God, we need you for this. Brothers and sisters, we cannot be in contact with those things. And as we read in Revelation today, we can't be patient with those things. Don't let them into your home. Don't let them through your TV. Don't let them onto your phone, onto your computer screen. You're not permitted to do these things as God's followers. Because when you do, he says, you become like Sodom and you become like Gomorrah, who follow the pursuit of pleasure over godliness. And God says, I set these cities up as an example of what I will do to all who follow these things. And so he warns them. The second area. The third and final area today is the empty worship, which we see uh, in verses 11 all the way down um, to verse 15. This is sort of the, 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 the third of four, the empty worship. It's interesting, isn't it, that the people who don't know God, the people who are following in a kind of a headlong, reckless pursuit, sexual pleasure, they're not avoiding worship. Isn't that interesting? They still go to church. They still say their prayers. They still hear the preacher reading the scripture. They still give their offerings and their sacrifice. They do all these things So that one of the best places, my brothers and sisters, to hide from God is the church. One of the best places to run away from the Lord is to be present in his worship. But in a way that is utterly insincere. We read that today. God does not accept these things because their worship, the prayers, the hearing, all the doing is fundamentally empty of obedience. And when the worship is empty of obedience, it doesn't count. It doesn't matter. This is not saying that God is not looking for worshipers. Clearly he is. We read that in John 4. I seek worshipers, right? I seek those who will worship me in spirit... And I seek those who will worship me in truth. And God says, I'm seeking for these kinds of worshipers that under the ministry of the Holy Spirit will come under the obedience of my truth, <laughs> will submit to themselves and yield themselves to the, to the commands of my word. Those are the kinds of, of worshipers I'm seeking. When Jesus says that in John 4, he's referring to what has just happened with that woman whose heart has been searched out by the truth of Jesus, you say correctly, you speak truly that you don't have a husband. In fact, you've had five husbands. And the one you're living with now isn't your husband at all. And she comes under the truth of Jesus' pronouncement. My brothers and sisters, where there's worship, the happy clappy pew, and the raised hands, and all these things where there's an utter refusal to obey, it's not worship at all. It's not real. And we all stumble. We all fall. We're all at times overtaken by the devil. That's, what not, that's not what the Lord is talking about here. He's talking about those people who consistently, rebelli- rebelliously refuse to come under the authority of Scripture. And if that's you, the Bible says, your worship isn't real. And the Lord doesn't accept it. because. Sacrifice is not as important as obedience. False worship. And the fourth area of of criticism here is with Israel's manifest oppression of the poor. So in verses 17, um, uh, sorry, 18, sorry, the end of 15, he says, your hands are full of blood. And then in 17, he says, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, and plead the widow's cause. So they've forgotten God, they're no longer Israel, they've pursued the godless, sensual pleasures of the world, their worship has become empty because they're not obedient And now finally we read that they've, they've lost sight of what it means to take care of the oppressed. Now let me say simply here, we have a hard time with this as evangelicals. We have a hard time remembering that pure religion is not to keep ourselves unspotted from the world and to keep pure doctrine. That's not pure religion. Pure religion is this, to keep yourself unspotted from the world, to take care of the widows, and to take care of the orphans. That's pure piety. And it's very, very challenging for us. And we can, again, look down our noses at some of the the mainline liberal churches and all their emphasis on social justice, and we'll say, oh, there's one of those social justice churches, when the, the very essence of religion is to do these things the Lord says to us, and his complaint against Israel is that you've forgotten them. It is not that necessarily you're going out and doing the oppression. It's enough that you're indifferent to it. You just don't care. One of my, my favorite theology profs, my venerable prof, Victor Shepard, says the opposite of love isn't hate. The opposite of love is indifference. You just don't care. And how easy it is to be so full of this evangelical pursuit of right doctrine its good and right to do so. And we forget, Jesus really does call us to take care of the poor. He really does call us to take care of the widow. He really does call us to take care of the orphan. And especially as we move into this Christmas season, it's so very easy just to be filled with our own, you know, um, extended family. What they're going to get, what we're going to give them, how, what a wonderful uh, fest, feast, uh, festival, festive time it's going to be. It's very easy to forget that Christmas is about a man born into poverty so that the poor could be helped. And we can corrupt the very spirit of Christmas by forgetting that. And forgetting the Lord's word, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. We forget Acts 10.38, Jesus went about doing good. Brothers and sisters, it's not peripheral to our call. It's not a marginal thing. It's pure religion, <laughs> the Bible says. And God calls us to it because this is what God cares about. And he asks us to give ourselves to it. They've forgotten their background. They're they're no longer Israel. They're Sodom and Gomorrah. Their worship is empty because it's not obedient. And they've forgotten the heart of pure religion in verse 17. And yet, look at verse 18. God will not give up on them. (laughs) What a wonderful thing. Even though there's all this badness, all this corruption, God will not give up on his people. Come now, he says, let us reason together. Because all this sin is just a flight from reason. It's irrational. Let us reason together, says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they shall become like wool. Brothers and sisters, the astonishing thing about scarlet and crimson is not just that they're glaring. It's not just that they're bold colors. They're permanent colors. They don't come out. (laughs) The prophet says here, there's no stain too deep. There's no stain so bold. There's no stain so glaring that God cannot get it out. Christ is enough. His death, his suffering, his agony, his blood, it gets out the deepest stains no matter what it is. And no matter what stains you bring in the church today, no matter what sins you've dragged into this place and your conscience are sullied with, there's nothing too glaring for God to get it out. He says, I will get it all out. And I will not only remove the guilt, he says, I will not only remove the shame, I will remove its power, for sin will not have dominion over you, he says. The promise is grand, and the promise is great. Brothers and sisters, the call today for us is to repent. The call for us today is to believe And so open our hearts again, afresh to God, that we might be worshipers in spirit, under the ministry of God's spirit, and we might be worshipers in truth. (laughs) Not given to these things, but given to the God of the universe. So let's pray together. God, our Father, we thank you that you are the Lord. We thank you that you rule heaven and earth We thank you for your word today and we pray, O God, that we would be a true Israel, that we would be those who grapple with God and seek God and wrestle with God. We pray today, O God, that you deliver us from all of the vain, sensual pursuits of this world, O God. We pray today that our worship of you would not be vain, but would be in spirit and in truth, that we would obey you, Lord, Make us not like those listeners to Ezekiel who plotted his words, but walked away unchanged. And Father, we pray today that we would take seriously your call to take care of the poor. To give ourselves, Lord God, to the oppressed, we pray. For we ask it in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.